and thanks for listening to this uh, vintage style social action briefing that we're recording on November 2nd, a uh, week before uh, we get find out what happens in the midterms. I am Craig Bilch. I'm joined by Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hi, Craig. I say vintage style because Martina is not with us this week. She's under the weather, but faithful listeners will be getting a lot of Martina the next two weeks as uh, Jess and I will not be around and Martina will have a couple interviews with uh, some guests to be named. Um, But yeah, so we will not be, I don't know if the interviews will talk about the midterms, perhaps they will, perhaps they won't, but um, it's gonna, we'll have had some time to digest the results by the next time uh, you and I get on the podcast, Jess. Yeah, that should be fun. I'm hoping for the best. I will be getting on a plane next Wednesday morning to fly to California. And I have decided that if the midterms go really bad in New York, that I just may not get on my return flight and (laughs) stay in California, but we'll see. But more importantly, Tuesday is not election day. Tuesday is the end of the election and everyone has the opportunity between now and then, the only exception being Monday to get out and vote in New York. So everyone should do that as soon as possible. You can use the lovely New York State voter lookup tool to figure out where your polling place is or what early polling locations are available to you. And absolutely everyone should do that immediately, if not sooner. Yeah. And, you know, you can always just uh, Google whatever county you live in, early vote 2022, be a bunch of places to choose from. You'll see the hours there. Unless you live in New York City, if you live in New York City, you are actually assigned to a specific polling location, even for early voting. So make sure to use that voter lookup tool to figure out which one is your early polling location if you live in the five boroughs. Um, and yes, go and do, yes, well, there are many, many, many people in a very small area in New York City, so they need to operate a little bit differently than the rest of us. And, you know, for some people, like my mom really lives close to her polling location and likes to walk down and vote when she gets off work so she doesn't vote early and that's fine and same thing actually my sister lives in queens and her polling location on election day is actually way closer to her house than her early voting location so you know look it up make a plan figure out when you're going to do it and stick to it yeah i was knocking doors for jackie gordon right by a school and when i tell the voters about early voting they're like well i just voted that school on election day it's like okay makes sense yeah, whatever I, is easier for you. Just make a plan. Yeah, and I, I'm realizing, I'm remembering, I did, I did vote early in New York City when I last lived there, and I remember, I remember it being like I had a specific early voting place, and it was different than my election day place, yeah. which was surprising when I was planning on. Like I think I did it before work and like planned the amount of minutes it would take to walk and then ended up being different. I looked it up at the last second. But it's all good. Well, just remember that like there are less in New York City, there are significantly less early voting locations than there are 
election day places. So that's why oftentimes, and same thing everywhere else. That's why oftentimes it's actually just easier to vote on election day if you live super close to your polling location, which most people do in New York anyway. Um, so a lot of times it's just easier, but the point is to just make a plan and then do that, figure out whatever is easiest for you. Yes. And, um, I think what a lot of, uh, the data shows and, uh, uh, operators and experts believe is that, uh, the midterms, uh, is very, the, uh, the economy is, is, uh, a lot of people think is the most important issue. There's that famous phrase, it's the economy stupid. Mm-hmm. Some people can disagree, but we know for sure that is the ground that Republicans want to fight on um, because inflation is high and they blame Joe Biden for it, even though it happens around the world. Um, and uh, we know that you know what uh, Democrats want to do to combat inflation it's lowering the cost of things uh, like prescription drugs and uh, and healthcare and you know childcare and they want to you know a lot of them want to bring back the uh, the uh, child tax credit and it's sort of been opaque as to what uh, Republicans want to do and we we did find out that they want to hold the debt ceiling hostage and lower costs but uh, some reporting came out with some of their more specific ideas. Um, before we get into them, um, we know, well, so, some of the early feedback is that it really could just make uh, inflation really worse because you know you can kind of anticipate what the fiscal policy of Republicans is gonna be. It's gonna be tax cuts for rich people and businesses. And uh, even, Michael Strain, who's a conservative economist at the American Enterprise Institute said, quote, it is unlikely that any of the policies proposed by Republicans would meaningfully reduce inflation in 2023 when rapidly rising prices will still be a major problem for the economy and and for consumers. Um, But despite uh, despite not having good plans um, and really just focusing on making people's lives miserable that don't vote for them, Polls do suggest that Americans, uh, like I think it's like 50% of, uh, to, you know, maybe like 39 or something like that. Um, and the other people don't know, trust Republicans uh, on the economy more than Democrats. Despite such proposals that uh, were listed in this New York Times article, were mentioned, I made a list of it. So one is to make permanent parts of the uh, 2017 tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts that are set to expire over the next three years. They have vowed to repeal the corporate tax increases that uh, Biden signed uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act and gutting gut funding for the uh, IRS. Um, which was given more money to help the U.S. go after high-earning and corporate tax cheats. Um, Conservative economists say that the inflation impact of extending the tax cuts could be much smaller because those extensions could lead businesses to invest more, people to work more, and growth to uh, increase across the economy. But uh, conservative economists always say, oh, you know, they could pay for themselves. They could do everything that anybody ever wants, um, but you know, never really does. And also 
these proposals would have to be signed into law by Biden or have a veto-proof majority for so these things, these particular things aren't really happening anyway. Um, I, I don't know if you saw, did you see the snippets of the Obama speeches? He, was, he said something like if an asteroid was going to hit the earth that Republicans would propose cutting taxes for the wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> Is it really? Yeah. Is everything? It, I mean, it really is like you can kind of just name any random thing and their solution will be tax cuts for the rich. It's quite unfortunate how single focused they have become, but it has also greatly benefited them in that they continue to win elections, even though they really shouldn't, given that they don't help anybody. Yeah, they're just, uh, they, you know, are good at making people hate Democrats. Um, and Democrats who can be pretty good at that too, making people hate Democrats. Um, fantastic at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the other uh, potential inflation benefits that Republicans have offered is that they will not allow Democrats to pass more bills and spending that they want to do. Um, I don't know how that would really help bring down inflation. Um, they again want to lower spending, which of course would uh, you know lower government spending means you know probably widespread government layoffs, uh, reduce support for you know low income individuals, and uh, it could prompt a recession. Um, they want to reduce federal regulations governing new energy development, which so like, there's a there's a progressive version of permitting reform, and then there's the Republican version of permitting reform. And they both, that, that sentence describes both of them, but they mean very different things. Obviously, Republicans being more pro fossil fuel um, and want to benefit corporations, where the progressive version of uh, the new reducing regulations is to build clean energy stuff. So, not the worst thing in the world, but their version of it's not, obviously not great. Um, They've talked about imposing work requirements, which we hate on this program, on federal benefits programs, um, in the hopes of reducing federal spending on the programs and increasing the number of workers in the economy. And uh, this, when the state of, of our welfare state post Clinton is with the block grants and like states like I think like Mississippi and Nevada, Louisiana that we talked about before, like use like 3% of their welfare funds to give to people, like things like that, so. Yeah, it's really not helping much. Unfortunately, in this post-welfare reform world, they're allowed to use this money on like marriage incentives and uh, absence-only sex education because, you know, sex is a direct, you know, line to welfare because um, we're all on it. Um, you know, just like ridiculous things that really have nothing to do with helping, you know, people at all and have more to do with morality education or religious education. And it's really just so unfortunate, the state of our welfare. I mean, work requirements do nothing to actually help people gain employment. Um, and in a lot of states, actually don't include education. So if you're trying to you know, educate yourself in any way, get a GED, high school diploma, a trade school, apprenticeship, nothing like they don't count towards the work requirements. It's usually a very specific list of things that 
you have to do that really provide no actual benefit to the person doing it, um, but likely do provide a benefit to some corporation who makes major donations to political candidates in the area. Yeah, also welfare funds in Mississippi were famously spent uh, building a volleyball stadium for Brett Favre's daughter. Yes, because volleyball is exactly what we need to lower, you know, the need for welfare in the future. Yeah, and there was something else that came out this week, but I forget uh, what it was. Um, This is from a different Times article, but uh, another way that Republicans have uh, proposed lowering spending is to raise the age for collecting Social Security from uh, 270 from 67 and requiring many older Americans to pay higher premiums for their health coverage. I'm laughing because it's just like, all this shit that they want to do is so bad and so unpopular. So I try not to talk about it and just try to focus people on things that they hate. And or, I mean, here's the thing. Do. Here's the thing that's like so crazy to me is that you... So like the latest retirement age for social security is 67. So you have to file some kind of like claim for social security by then or like potentially lose it. And the thing is, is that once you file for social security, you're limited in the amount of money that you're allowed to make every year. So we're both at the same time telling people that like they should work longer, but also like limiting the amount of money they can make. And the, the philosophy on limiting, I mean, the philosophy on raising the age is just being a giant fucking pain in the ass without any thought. But the philosophy on like n- mandating like that you can't make more than a certain amount of money while on social security is that like you shouldn't be in the workforce, like quote unquote, taking a job from someone younger who needs it. But you are doing like two very contradictory things. And like, just take me, for example, like, I hope that I will be capable of working past the age of 67 because I would get bored as fuck if I wasn't working at all. But I am a college professor who has really, with the exception of like very sporadic catering parties over a 15 year period, has never done any kind of manual labor. Like I have never worked with my hands. I don't do that sort of stuff. If you're like a steel worker or you work in like a factory, you work in manufacturing, construction, stuff like that, like you're going to be lucky if you can work until you're 67. Like at that point, like you really kind of have to be in management or like you're just probably going to have killed your body. So like you can raise the age of retirement, but what are you going to do with all of the people that have jobs that they literally cannot do until that age because of wear and tear on your body? Like there needs to be some like actual practical thought put into this and also like eliminate the, the, the require the like limitations on how much someone can make on social security, because there are going to be people like me we're probably going to want to continue working. Like I, first of all, can't imagine being completely retired. And second of all, do something that allows me the option to make money even on social security. Like I could continue to adjunct or work part-time or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's, I feel like, I feel like this would just, never actually happen and they're just saying it because it's some kind of answer i don't know because well that's not entirely true because the uh, the age of retirement prior when social security was first started was 65 and that was it and like we did 
like theoretically raise the age. So you can take social security at 63 now also. So we both raised and lowered it, but you take a serious penalty at 63. If you take social security, um, you know, and you can retire at 65, you don't take as serious a penalty, but like they, they raised it to 67 because they don't want people to retire that early. And you know what? When Social Security was created, it was a significantly different program. You know, first of all, the average life expectancy was 65. So Social Security was built on the premise that you were going to live a year after you retired, which is now a ridiculous prospect for a lot of people, which is good. That's what we want. We want people to live longer. I'm in no way discouraging this. Um, But you also didn't, so like the first generation of people who collected social security had not paid into social security because it hadn't existed before that. And it was a flat rate of $200 a month. So anybody who retired and signed up for social security got $200 a month. So it was very different. And as time went by and the program changed and evolved, we did raise the age of retirement. So I don't think it's like wildly out of the question that this is something that could potentially happen in the future. Um, Just like it wasn't wildly out of the question that like Roe was going to get overturned. Like the more Republicans- Were seniors a big voting block for the people that wrote, that raised it the last time? So, yes, I mean, seniors have always been a large voting block. And I think the trade off when the 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 trade off when it was raised to 67 was that there is this carve out for people to be able to retire at 63. Like it wasn't a singular bill that raised the retirement age to 67. It was a package that like included a lot of changes. So you could kind of sweep away like the some of the like negative aspects of it. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't. They could like, give everybody a three hundred dollar check and, and then raise the retirement age or something. It can do all kinds of shit. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things like Republicans have been pushing for years to also like partially privatize it. So like, instead of like paying the full Social Security tax, like you get some of it that you can like invest on your own, which like. I am a reasonably intelligent person who cannot even begin to like try to figure out the fucking stock market. Like I just don't, it's like not my thing. I don't care. I don't want to care. And I don't want the fucking responsibility of having to like invest that money. I just want it to be there when I retire. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think actually I'm doing a 180 because now I'm imagining this being their demand when it's time to for the debt ceiling. And then Biden caving to just a slight, uh, a slight change to Social Security to quote make it more solvent or something like that. Although, I mean, yeah, and then it would involve like something with Obamacare. Uh, I don't know who else. But um, no, I mean, this has been something that has been going on for a long time. It's not, you know, yeah. I don't. Like, I trust that Republicans are going to continue to, like, beat on the drum of, like, wanting to raise the age. Do I think it's going to be successful this year? Who knows? I mean, it's, it's like, always an opportunity for them because they don't stop. I mean, if they... What if the compromise was, like, all right, we'll raise the debt ceiling. We'll do the child tax credit. Oh, you got to raise the age and make some uh, affordable care subsidies worse. 
The problem is, is that if you are going to raise the age on social security, there always has to be a carve out for people doing jobs that re- like are just going to require them to retire earlier than other people. Like you cannot compare retirement for a construction worker to like retirement for like a college professor. Like there, o- there always has to be this thought about people that are doing very necessary jobs that it's getting harder and harder to find people to do these very necessary jobs that just cannot work, you know, until they're, they're 67 or 70. Yeah. Well, no matter what they're able to do, uh, a former, former Mitch McConnell advisor quoted in the article admitted that the amount of cuts needed to actually move the needle on inflation are really off the table. Um, but that won't stop Republicans in their midterm pitch because the Democrats are in power and they can hang inflation around uh, their collective necks. Um, Jared Bernstein, who is a member of uh, President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors and is a social worker, which I learned reading in a textbook for your class, uh, he said that their plan to repeal the IRA and double down on the Trump tax cuts for the wealthy will worsen inflation. On top of that, they're also explicit that they're coming for Social Security and Medicare, making this a terribly destructive agenda that starts by fighting the Fed and then moves on to devastating vulnerable seniors. Sums it up pretty well. Um, so that is sort of the substantive debate that ostensibly decides the election somewhat. And then there are the, uh, you could say extra legal or, you know, you know, not just like the manipulation of the legal system in some cases to uh, affect election outcomes. And that's voter suppression. We'll, do, we'll start with uh, something positive, some actual accountability for two right-wing trolls, Jacob Wall and uh, Jack Berkman, I think, or Berman, Um, who cares, Um, but it's Berkman. Uh, They they pled guilty in Ohio to uh, a telecommunications fraud charge for arranging thousands of robocalls that falsely claimed that the information voters included with mail ballots could be used by law enforcement and debt collectors, the men were indicted in 2020 after they were accused of using the robocalls to intimidate residents in minority neighborhoods to refrain from voting by mail um, at a time when many voters were reluctant to cast ballots in person because of the pandemic. And uh, the calls also claimed that the government could use mail and voting information to track people for mandatory vaccination programs. They used a voice broadcasting service provider to place more than 67,000 calls across several Midwestern states. More than 8,100 of them uh, went to telephone numbers in Cleveland and East Cleveland. And about 3,400 were answered uh, by a person or went to voicemail. Uh, They face up to a year in prison and a fine of 2,500 when they are sentenced on the 29th of November. They also face similar charges in Michigan, 
where they were charged in 2020 with intimidating voters, conspiracy to intimidate voters, using a computer to intimidate voters, and conspiracy to use a computer to intimidate voters, uh, according to a criminal complaint. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission last year proposed a fine of just over $5 million for them. And uh, Berkman's company, J.M. Berkman and Associates, uh, for apparently making 1,141 unlawful robocalls to wireless phones without consent. An FCC spokesman said on Tuesday to the New York Times uh, that the proposed fine was still pending. And finally, for these two, at least in this telling of their situation, in 2020, a federal judge in New York ordered uh, the two men uh, to call 85,000 voters who had received robocalls and inform them that the original call, quote, contained false information. I like that. I like that sort of restorative justice uh, uh, strategy for them on that one. Um, and then there were some pieces that came out in Bolt Magazine and Huffington Post about Florida, the sort of fallout from DeSantis arresting people who uh, had criminal convictions and thought they could vote because they were given a voter registration card. They were given a voter ID by the state of Florida, um, but they happened to have committed felonies that uh, didn't qualify for the restoring of voting rights. And then he made a big show of arresting 19 or 20 of them. Um, and it was bullshit. And so far, six of them have already been declined by the state, uh, the state prosecutor or the county prosecutor that it's their jurisdiction to do so because the cases were weak. Uh, yeah, as a county prosecutor. And then one, uh, one of them was not taken up by the state because it should go to the county and the local state attorney likely won't charge there because of a low conviction likelihood. But uh, it's still having a chilling effect that could have been expected. Um, Mike Gottlieb, a Democratic state legislature who's on the legal defense team for one of the men facing charges said, quote, we've already encountered other, under, other individuals who have said, look, I'm afraid to vote. Uh, I've not encountered uh, Mark Ely, who is the Leon County uh, Supervisor of Elections. He said, quote, I have not encountered in the past this many voters calling, concerned they may be prosecuted or what have you for voter fraud. And these are all eligible voters that have contacted me. So that's really what the intended effect here is. Um, the defendants say they were told by various parties uh, election officials, canvassers, probation officer, even a sheriff's deputy, that they were eligible to vote, according to court records. And um, like I said, they were issued uh, voter registration cards by the state and used them. Um, the the defendants here are uh, a marked contrast to a, a real uh, incidence of uh, voter fraud that we talked about on this podcast. The four residents of the villages who were charged with voting twice. One of them away trial, but the three others um, were, two are Republican, one's an unaffiliated voter, all of them are white. They entered a pre-trial diversion program that required them to earn at least a C grade in a 12 week adult civics course. <laughs> oh my God, that's <laughs> ever. 
Yeah. I mean, I wonder if, <laughs> I wonder if they will fail and just have to take it again and just in end this loop until they finally get brought back to reality and how the government actually works. I mean, this really kind of goes back to the idea that like we should all be taking civics classes. I mean, the amount of disinformation that exists right now is just unimaginable. It's like every time I talk to someone about voting, you have to explain, you know, stuff. Nobody really understands how the government works, even just from like a basic textbook definition. I don't even mean like the real practical aspects of it. Um, you know, and you can really, the, my students that are interning in legislator's office really get to see that like up close and personal, just how disconnected from reality people are when it comes to like government and how it functions. And it's, it's wild. We all need civics classes. Like that should be a required part of everyone's high school curriculum, but that's just, it's just like another way of keeping people unengaged is by never speaking to them about it. I was talking to somebody on the phone the other day. I cannot remember who it was. Um, but about the fact that we like, you should be able to, I bring my nephew with me to vote every time. And we should use the old voting machines in New York that like most boards of elections still have a couple around, you know, so that when kids come to vote with their parents, like they can vote too, you know, obviously if you're not 18, your vote's not going to get counted, but like let them use the old machines. They're still around. It's not like they have to be super accurate or like well-maintained, but like let kids like go into a voting booth and like make a decision and train them on like how to do this before they're actually old enough to do it. Um, and it would just be fun for them. They get to participate, see what it's like and, and start doing it before they're actually 18. You know, and if we use the old machines, there's no chance that you would accidentally count kids' votes because we don't vote on those machines anymore. It's like real simple. Yeah. And um, their civic education is really lacking. I think we spend at least like 100 times more on STEM than we do on civics so we can all be productive uh, for the tech companies that uh, destroy our democracy, <laughs> but uh, and and less uh, less concerned with the softer side of uh, of uh, education, I guess. I mean, look, STEM's important. I'm not saying don't spend money on it. Like, we need doctors, we need engineers, like we need people to do you know these jobs. But we also really, really need civic education again. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the disparity is just. Uh, yeah, it was, and it was, it was from the the Cold War. So after the Cold War, there was all the funding on STEM, and then uh, yeah. Oh, here I found it. I, I we, this was part of like one of my last projects. So as a nation. Um, we have invested a hundred billion dollars in STEM, and uh, yeah, I think like that's like a factor of a hundred more than uh, than in civics. And I mean, to a certain extent, like let's be realistic here. Like STEM costs a lot of money. Like there's a lot of equipment involved, and like training people and and convincing people to even do it in the first place. And I'm sure that 
well, in no way is it a majority, but a significant chunk of that money was probably also used to convince like women and other people to join STEM careers that like wouldn't typically do it. And like, that's money well spent, you know, civics, it doesn't cost a lot of money to, to teach that sort of stuff. Like we need to start investing at least like a little bit, like train people to teach it, maybe buy some like fake voting machines for kids to use, um, or just reuse our old ones just to get, you know, people in the habit of doing this sort of stuff. But like, up the game a little bit. Like so much civic education has also gone away since the Cold War for a lot of reasons. Because again, as I say all the time, an uneducated electorate is the best kind of electorate. It's easier to, you know, fall victim to the fake news that has become so dominant in this country now. Um, It keeps people unengaged because they don't understand how to engage. Um, and it, you know, helps those in power when less people are not participating and that all of that is a problem. Yeah. Last time, uh, they voted on, uh, national history standards. It was rejected by 90, 99 to one in the Senate. <laughs> um, they, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they can spend money promoting it. I don't know, but yeah, definitely center should cost more. But but uh, the emphasis clearly needs to be increased. We do not have a healthy, simple society. And uh, starting with some robust civic education, just spending more time on it, um, less time teaching to particular tests and things of that nature, um, be better, better off. But. Um, so I mentioned that, you know, there a lot of these cases aren't likely to secure uh, convictions under uh, Florida state law. The Florida Division of Elections is required to notify local officials that someone is ineligible to vote. Um, and uh, no notice was given um, and the, you know, in this situation, the individuals are mistakenly issued their uh, registration cards. There's an attempted remedy here. Uh, Starting in August, uh, uh, Floridians on probation have been required to sign an updated form placing the burden on them to determine if they're eligible to vote. Beneath warnings about remaining drug-free and reporting to their probation officer, uh, there's this new message, quote, by signing this letter, uh, you agree that you are solely responsible for determining if you're legally able to register to vote and that you must solely determine if you're lawfully qualified to vote. And if someone tells you that you are eligible to vote, you must rely upon your own independent knowledge as informed by your attorney, if applicable, of your individual circumstances and not upon the advice of any third parties who may be incorrect or unqualified to interpret your eligibility. So, um, yeah, and this is really truly energy in the right place in the right direction here. Let's put the onus on uh, parolees or you know people on probation to figure it out. Meanwhile, you know, the system is intentionally confusing. How about we just let everybody participate, and even if you're in jail, let everybody vote. Just, yeah. You know, I know it's like a wild like unpredictable and you know 
un-American thing to do, but maybe it's a good idea. And I feel like I've seen research that voting reduces recidivism because you'll feel more connected as like the actual person living, you know, a real life. It does. It reduces recidivism. And it's funny, actually, because I got to find it. I have it somewhere from... um, I don't know. I think it might have been my MSW program, but I found research that actually shows that. Oh no, it might have been a job I had. I found research that actually shows that while we think kids would just vote for whoever their parents are voting for, that if you actually lowered the age of voting to 16, it produces a more engaged electorate, that young people are actually more likely to do it. Part of the reason may be that they are yet to be, um, at the time, this research is obviously older, that they're yet to be so jaded by society, but that they are more likely to participate and they're more likely to actually influence their parents' participation, not necessarily who their parents vote for, but their parents' participation in elections, and that they actually don't just like vote for whoever their parents are going to vote for. They make their own decisions. So also a big fan of lowering the voting age to 16. That'd be fascinating. Like you get rid of the electoral college and let like lower the voting age to 16 and like just things would change so much. I would have loved to. Campaigning. I would have loved to have voted when I was 16. I mean, I was the one who literally, I was 17 and I couldn't vote in the 2004 election because I wasn't old enough. And I got my dad to register to vote and he had never voted in his life. Like I was the one that was like pushing everybody to go vote and like driving my friends who were older than me to the polls. So like, I see like where that comes from, even from myself of like an older generation who wasn't necessarily as civically engaged. Like I can't imagine what like young people now would do like so much more, you know, than even people when I was 16 were doing, like, it would be so good. Yeah. It also connects people to society. And, you know, I'm sorry, but like at 16, like most kids already have like a part-time job, like they're paying taxes, they're living in society, they're going to high school and probably hating it. And, you know, they should be allowed to vote in their school board elections. You know, they should be allowed to vote for president too, but like they should have a say over the way their school is governed. Um, You know. And I'm not saying like the only say, like it should be a community process just because you're 16 doesn't mean that you can't participate in the process. We're, uh, were Florida and Ohio swing states in 2004? I feel like they were, right? Yeah, that I mean, that's been pretty consistent throughout time, but yes, um, for sure Florida was. Um, yeah, Florida was these. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the 2000 election, if it rings a bell for anybody, it was kind of a mess in Florida. Um, and yeah, that's been pretty consistent. You know, there's there's always like fluctuation in swing states and there's, you know, changes over time of like what could potentially be a swing state like Georgia hadn't been, you know, since back to like 1992. But you know, states come and go. I mean, even New York in 1980 and 1984 voted for Reagan. You know, we think of ourselves as like this, you know, blue progressive state and we're not really. 
Um, you know, I know the polls for Kathy Hochul are looking better again, but she was like dead even with Selden. Like people think this is such a progressive state. It's not. We literally voted for like the person who really popularized trickle down economics twice, not once. We did it twice. <laughs> and uh, make America great again. That was his slogan. I know. So pathetic. Um, but yeah, so those were those are swing states that may no longer be swing states, especially Ohio, although the Senate race is competitive. Um, and who knows, maybe Charlie Chris, out, Charlie Chris somehow beats his hand. I haven't even seen any polls, but that would make me so happy. But um, the last couple of uh, voter suppression items here are from two current swing states, past and current uh, swing states, first being Pennsylvania, where on Tuesday, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ordered that election officials uh, must refrain from counting mail-in ballots that lack a written date on their outer envelope, which is obviously what Republicans wanted. The fewer votes counted, the better, as far as Republicans are concerned. Um, I just like fundamentally want to understand what the date matters. Like if, like, in addition to the fact that like the post office postmark stuff when they get it, so like they stamp a date on the envelope of when they received it, all you have to do is say like, all right, I, okay. So if like you receive the ballot post-election day and there's no date on it and there's no like legible postmark date on it, that's kind of a problem because you can't vote after election day. So, I mean, I don't want to be a pain in the ass, but like that could be problematic. But if you receive the ballot before election day, what the fuck does it matter if there's a date on it or not? Well, because that's the rule. That's why, because it is (laughs) the, uh, the RNC and several other party aligned groups filed the lawsuit in October to stop undated ballots from being counted, citing a state law that requires voters to write the date on the return envelope and sending them in. The ruling, though, uh, directly conflicts with the guidance issued in September um, by Lee Chapman, who is the Democrat that is the acting secretary of the Commonwealth, and said that ballots without a date on them should be counted as long as they are returned on time. This was disputed um, in the US Supreme Court for I think the last election. Um, but then, I don't know, I was reading and I was kind of confused because like it ended with um, the Supreme Court sort of throwing out the Court of Appeals saying that they could be counted and then setting it. I think they're gonna hear, they're gonna, they, they granted cert so they're gonna hear it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think this really just comes down to Republicans suck. They don't want anybody to be able to vote unless you're an old white dude, preferably who owns land and is Christian. And really, they just suck. Like, I if you if voter suppression was really such a problem, I'm sorry, not voter suppression. Voter suppression is a fucking problem. If voter fraud was actually a problem. And if this was a widespread issue and you really cared about the integrity of elections, you would sit down and attempt to have honest conversations with Democrats in places where there are actually elected Democrats. And like you would actually be actively working on a way to better educate people on how to actually vote and to put real measures in place to combat voter fraud. But voter fraud isn't a real problem. So you can't offer real fucking solutions to it because it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and then the solution is that you have to take a 
civics course and get at least a C if you're white. Um, all right, so Arizona, our last uh, swing state here, um, a federal judge in Arizona has, uh, according to the New York Times, sharply curtailed the activities of an election monitoring group in the vicinity of ballot boxes, including taking photos or videos of voters openly carrying firearms, posting information about voters online, or spreading falsehoods about election laws. Uh, so Clean Elections USA, who filed the lawsuit, is state, or who has done, sorry, who has done this uh, election monitoring, has stated the goal of preventing voter fraud. Uh, their goal is to prevent voter fraud by stocking out ballot boxes to ensure that people don't behave as, quote, mules by illegally casting multiple ballots. In recent weeks, the self-described mule watchers, some who have been armed, have gathered around outdoor ballot boxes in Maricopa County to take pictures of voters and in some cases, post those images online. The League of Women Voters filed a lawsuit suing Clean Elections USA, saying that its, in, that its actions amounted to, quote, time-tested methods of voter intimidation um, and seeking an injunction to halt its activities. A man who testified without revealing his name publicly for fear of harassment, uh, uh, eight to 10 people said that, he said that eight to 10 people filmed the couple and told them they were, quote, hunting mules. Images of him and his car were posted online and Melody Jennings, the founder of Clean Elections USA, subsequently appeared on Steve Bannon's pop podcast saying they'd caught a mule and, quote, blasted it out viral. Jennings, so who do you think she, this lady is like? She is a Christian pastor and counselor based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, inspired by a trailer for 2,000 Mules, a, quote, conspiracy-laden documentary um, that espouses the theory that illegal votes and drop boxes were responsible for Trump losing in 2020. So a big lie believer does some classic voter intimidation. They're arguing that they should be allowed to film people because the press is allowed to film people. Hmm. Um, so they think I think they had proactively agreed to not talk to them and maybe not even carry weapons anymore. But uh, the judge went further. Um, it's really disgusting fascist behavior and. Uh, you know, we're, the, we're, we're getting a return of things that have happened in this country before. So it's, you know, it's shocking, but not surprising, I guess, like as all this shit tends to be. Uh, but voter intimidation is really fucked up. And the, in Houston, I saw that um, in uh, Harris County, where Houston is, that Republican poll watchers have been there uh, trying to intimidate people and they requested federal assistance. So, I mean, what do you expect when you know, one party is full of election deniers? You know, elections are just getting fucked with. I mean, they're only election deniers when they lose, which is just the yeah. most hilarious part of this whole thing is that they very clearly are fine with elections when they win. I would love for the outcome to be like these people that like, you know, these, these like, truthers and election deniers that, you know, get these jobs working the polls, just like actually do their jobs. And then like, 
the their choice candidate loses and then they get accused of like perpetuating voter fraud you know it's just it's like really simple this isn't a widespread problem republicans need to get the fuck over it and actually like attempt to put measures in place that both make it easier for people to vote and actually like secure elections, you know, because it's not like wildly out of the question that voter fraud could happen. Like, yes, like it can happen anywhere. It happens in other countries all of the time. Like if you actually cared about the issue, you would do things to make it easier for people to vote while also like protecting the integrity of elections and nothing they choose to do actually protects the integrity it just scares the crap out of people you know what i don't want to be around people open carrying weapons ever like doesn't matter if i'm voting or doing something else like stop going to the polls to just specifically intimidate people it's bullshit yeah and and in georgia they can't hand out water like within 150 feet of the polling place yeah but you can stand there with like a fucking semi-automatic weapon i'm sure and like scare the crap out of people so you can't have pictures yeah you can't have a basic necessity but like sure like scare the crap out of people why not um and also this week um supreme court heard arguments about uh race conscious admission programs in harvard and unc um and they appear ready to rule that uh you know affirmative action is unlawful based on the questions that the conservative judges were asking in five hours of vigorous and sometimes testy arguments going to the New York Times. Um, and of course, if they choose, if this is the ruling, it would overrule decades of decades of precedents, but this court has shown they don't give a fuck about that. Um, it would jeopardize affirmative action at colleges and universities around the nation, particularly elite institutions decreasing the representation of Black and Latino students and bolstering the number of white and Asian ones. Uh, two particular themes ran through the questions from the court's conservatives. One, that educational diversity can be achieved without directly taking account of race and that there must, be a, uh, must come a time when colleges and universities stop making such distinctions. That is because uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said that she expected that 25 years from now, which was 2003, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. So because she had that quote, that hopeful quote, they're considering it a deadline, mm. uh, which is as ridiculous as anything else that's going on in this whole thing. Um, in the North Carolina case, the plaintiff said that the university discriminated against white and Asian applicants by giving preference to black, Hispanic, and Native American ones. University responded that its admission policies were uh, fostered educational diversity and were lawful under long-standing Supreme Court precedents. I would say they argued that correctly. Um, the case against Harvard has an additional element which accuses the university of discriminating against Asian American students by using a subjective standard to gauge traits that likability, courage, and kindness, and by effectively creating a ceiling for them in admissions um, in 2016, the Supreme Court upheld an admissions program at the University of Texas at Austin, holding that officials there could continue to consider race as a factor in ensuring a diverse student body. The vote was four to three. 
Scalia had died a few months before and Justice Kagan was refused. That's why it was seven justices. Um, Justice Kennedy writing for the majority said that courts must give universities substantial but not totally way in devising their admissions programs. He was joined by Sotomayor, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Breyer. Uh, six years later, only one member of that majority, Justice Sotomayor remains on the court. And uh, it had reaffirmed the 2003 case where Justice O'Connor said that about the 25 years thing. Uh, decisions are expected in June. Did you uh, listen to the, the arguments or hear clips of them? I heard clips of them. I couldn't listen to the whole thing, but I think like <clears throat> the goal of not having to use it is a lofty goal that is probably unattainable in the United States, but like, you know, theoretically, like it should be a goal of like that, you know, we don't need to do these things anymore because we've gotten to a point where we don't have to. So Harvard University is actually the oldest college in the United States. It was started as Harvard College in 1636. So 1636 to 1718, 19. So let's say 330 years of no affirmative action of a predominantly white male admissions to the university, at which point even in the 1960s, when affirmative action happens, like they would hit quotas and immediately stop admitting other people for a long time. So white men got 330 years and everybody else got like 60 years. So I think like we're due some fucking time here that realistically, like this is still absolutely fucking necessary um, and sort of ridiculous to say that 300 years can be of problematic admissions um, can be solved in 60. Like we're not that smart. We're not that good. Um, and it's not okay. Like we still need these things. Did you Google that Harvard was founded in 1636 or you just had that, that factoid there for, you know, for the taking? So I knew it was the first college. I knew it was the 1600s. I did not know that it was exactly 1636. <laughs> <laughs> but I did know it is, I mean, it's the oldest university in the country um, yeah. that I knew. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's like this is it's it's funny that it is specifically Harvard who's tied up in this admissions case. Um, but, yeah, they are the oldest college. And that was a similar point that Justice Jackson made. And she was talking about, you know, there are two people that could be applied because she was recused from the Harvard. Uh, case they were orig originally combined but once she joined the court they split them back up so she could recuse from harvard but in the unc one she's talking about two people applying to unc one you know, they both lived in north carolina for five generations one of them you know they're, they're all, all of their family generations went to unc they wanted to uphold that and the other couldn't because they're they you know they live in north carolina but a few of the generations were slaves and few could go to the university, but they, you know, still, you know, so that it, it pointed out sort of the, the inherent disadvantage um, that these types of uh, race conscious policies are looking to address. There's a chance that uh, like Kavanaugh and Roberts will go for the quote, like race blind version to just make the, make it shittier, but not wipe it off the, you know, 
just completely get rid of it, um, but they still might because of the court's composition. I just like I'm really curious as to like what they're gonna say. Like it, like are you gonna tell schools they can't consider it at all? And like I don't imagine like if if it's like a you can't consider it at all, that's gonna be a fucking problem. If it's a like you should be doing whatever you want and like don't take like the laws around affirmative action, like if they just like overthrow affirmative action as like a law, like I can't imagine there would be that many schools that would just stop considering race altogether. Like, I, I don't, I don't want them to overturn it. I just assume they're going to like the outcome of this is not going to be good, but like, I don't hear anyone complaining about the fact that like for years we've known that there are more women going to college than men. Um, That was brought up in the arguments yeah this has been this has been like an ongoing problem since like i was in school that like they like there like there are more women attempting to go to college it's actually been like a couple of years now since there's actually more women in medical school than men it's been like at least 15 or 20 years since there's actually been more women in law school than men um and this you know this has been like an evolving change over time but like there have been schools in the last couple of years that have admitted that they are letting in underqualified men to keep the uh, like male, female, like as 50, 50 as possible. Um, And it's actually not 50, 50 at most schools. And I don't like hear anybody complaining about that. Like schools are voluntarily admitting underqualified men to keep the stats good like why is that not a problem like why are we like so concerned about like affirmative action when it comes to like racial groups but not the like voluntary affirmative action that's coming when it comes to like making sure that like there's more men in colleges like it's just crazy to me like this is so specifically geared towards this like white supremacist mindset of like white people need to stay more educated and like we need to make sure that like the options are like available and like they're doing it under the guise of like this like you know issue with like Asian admissions at Harvard but like it's just so wild to me that nobody cares about that like we we need to make sure there's men in college so like we'll do whatever we can to like keep that happening so Justice Kagan asked the lawyer for the plaintiffs whether universities could put a thumb on the scale in admissions decisions to ensure that men were adequately represented in an era in which most college applicants are women. And he said that the question, that question would be governed by a less demanding legal standard than the one that applies to distinction based on race. Um, and to which Kagan said the different treatment would be peculiar, uh, saying that white men get a thumb on the scale, but people who have been kicked in the teeth by our society for centuries do not. And then the, the lawyer said that there should be no preference for white men, but men could perhaps gain an advantage. <laughs> so that's where that exchange Hilarious. Was. It's like actually, it's, it's laughable because it's just so ridiculous. Like, I just don't. I don't understand how like that's okay, but like we can't like, I just don't get it. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's just another case of like the like the conservative judges 
Just is saying ridiculous shit like uh, like Clarence Thomas, like what is diversity anyway? Like all that shit, and like, and then the the you know the, the liberal justices making like solid points, and there being tons of precedent, but like they have the numbers, so they can just do whatever the fuck they want, and that, t- that tends to be no, they can, and it's like so. I mean. It, this is going to have like a significant impact on college admissions, I'm sure. Like, I don't, again, like, do not in any way want to minimize this. Like, affirmative action exists for a reason. It does not in any way, like, belittle people that, like, are, in, you know, admitted under these policies. Like, it is attempting to do like a slight bit of good in an area that has been so problematic for so long but like it's just crazy to me that people don't think that this is necessary like and my bigger concern is that like colleges will behave themselves for like a couple of years because this is what they've been doing anyway so it's sort of just gonna like stick around for a while until all of a sudden it doesn't and it just becomes like a huge issue that it, it just so it's just so insane to me that like we're even debating these things. Like there's there's just no reason to debate them. Like we see the good in society from these policies. We see members of the Supreme Court who have benefited from these policies that are now one of nine people sitting on the court. Like the good that this has done for this country and for individual people that have benefited from this. And it just like, they're, it's just so stupid. It's just so stupid. Like if people had any understanding of history or knew about the court cases where people were suing because they were literally denied admissions to schools just based on the fact that they checked a box that said they were black on their application, like not that long ago, like there are people that are still alive that had this happen to them. The children of these people are still alive. Like this is not new. Like, I'm sorry, this is not old. Like, this is new. Like, this is stuff that has been happening recently. And the the ease with which I think we are going to fall back into that pattern in the next couple of years is the problem. And uh, also spoken about in this sort of debate, I don't think it came up, or I mean, it was five hours, maybe it did, but uh, there was this study earlier, uh, it was a study in 2019 that the National Bureau of Economic Research did that found that 43% of white students admitted to Harvard were recruited athletes, legacy students, children of faculty and staff, or uh, on the dean's interest list, which is applicants whose parents or relatives had donated to Harvard. And uh, 70%, or 75% of the white students um, would have been rejected if they had been treated as uh, hmm as just like not having those characteristics. And 70% of uh, all legacy applicants are white compared with 40% of all applicants who do not fall under one of those categories. Well, of course that's the case because if you're thinking about it, like in terms of like who was getting admitted to schools, you know, let's say 30 or 40 years ago, based on like the kid being 18 and their parents probably being a little bit older, just generally speaking, because they went to college when they had kids, like, of course, you know, 75% of legacy applicants are going to be white. That makes a ton of sense based on like the numbers and the time frame that we're talking about. But like, that's the thing too. Like 
why do we have legacy admissions? How is it like even possible that we're just admitting people based on like their parents having gone there and probably their grandfather? Like what good does that provide to the school in general? And what I was horrible people. It does. No, it does. It creates horrible people. And look, at the end of the day, I'm like not a fan of Ivy League schools anyway. Like, period. Like, I don't think that it like adds a value to society. It adds a value to like individual people's access. But like, I hate Ivy League education in the first place. But like, I would love to see what would happen if like Harvard would just like do an admission cycle, say like next year for like the incoming undergraduate class for like the fall of 2023, if they did the whole admission cycle, like completely blind, like you don't get the person's name, like every applicant gets assigned a number, you don't get the person's birthday, you don't get the name of their high school, you don't get whether they're a legacy student or not, none of that stuff. Like you get the kids transcripts with the school name and location completely blacked out so that you can't see it you get like their SAT or ACT scores and you get their essay and like whatever, like letters of recommendation with like the names of the people who wrote them blacked out, the any location, you know, blacked out and like see what the incoming class would look like if that was the admissions process. Like I would just be so curious if they even just did it as like an experiment, like, you know, do the admissions like the regular way and like use that as their actual admissions and then do like a complete blinds, like no family finances, none of that shit and like see what would come out of it. Because I'd be really curious to see what the demographic composition of the class would be if the admissions process was completely blind. Yeah, I, I guess you'd have to have you'd have to have different people doing it too. Well, you would need two groups of people because you would need yeah. one group of people to unless they have like a admissions portal that would that would do this for you like you would need a group of people who would like black out all the identifying information and even if they have like a computer software to do this someone would have to read through the application first and make sure that like they got you know because like some people in the letters of recommendation or in their personal essay would say like where they were from so you would need someone to first go through all the applicants and make sure that's like that's like extra step but like the people that are making the decisions like say you did the regular process first and then you did the blind process you'd recognize people and then but if you did the blind process first and then the regular process you'd want to like you'd recognize people again and want to make sure that you weren't biased you'd really like for the the actual reviewing part like you'd have and making the decisions they pretty much need to be like two separate groups of people that like but that people that like make decisions the way like harvard makes decisions they'd have to be like so you'd have to like maybe like so in this hypothetical i actually don't give a fuck who gets admitted so like do the blind process first and then have the same group of people do the actual admissions like i don't give a fuck oh, yeah. like all i care about is what would happen like i would love because i couldn't even begin to guess what would happen like i don't even want to like make a prediction i would just like to see what would happen to the admissions profile of the incoming class of 2023 if it was completely blind. Like, what would that, like, what would, like, the demographic characteristics be? What would, like, the income characteristics be, like, of people who got admitted under a completely blind system where you don't get any demographic information or financial information or location? Like, how would that change the incoming classes? It'd just be, like, a good 
like experiment to see what would happen. Yeah, it'd be fine. Yeah, that's true. It'd be, you know, they could, they would do the blind version first. And then if they wanted, you know, they pointed out some of their biases and when it was like unblinded and, you know, they went with somebody who deserved it more based on their transcript, you know, I guess that could be a good outcome. And then, but then there'd be all the donors that would like get people fired if they didn't admit their relative or whatever. So I'm sure it wouldn't match up one to one. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, I would love to see what would happen. Like, do you, you know, I would love to see, like, do we really need affirmative action policies if all admissions processes are completely blind? I'm sure the answer is still yes. But I would just be curious to see what would happen if we no longer were admitting like an overwhelming amount of like legacy students, if we didn't have demographic information and the biases that come with that, like what would happen to our admissions process if we just got the information that we needed? Yeah, interesting. All right, so finally, um, we are a couple of days past Halloween now, and now we know all of the damage truly done by rainbow fentanyl in trick-or-treating candy, um, which is zero. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a thing. All of the hullabaloo about it, there were, according to Paul Fari of the Washington Post, there were 1,542 news stories about rainbow fentanyl in the two months before Halloween, most warning that dealers could slip this drug to trick-or-treating kids because we know that's what drug dealers do. They like to give their drugs away for free, not sell them. Um, there hasn't been a single story confirming that happened at all. Um, the police officers, politicians, and media outlets that pushed this narrative uh, kind of have appeared to abandon the story and move on. Of according course. to this, uh, <laughs> yeah, of course, according to uh, Jerry Ianelli in the, the appeal wrote about this. Um, it began, the saga began in August when a press release from the DEA claimed that the agency had intercepted rainbow-colored fentanyl in 26 states. The agency said the drugs had essentially been trafficked into the U.S. by Mexican drug cartels, quote, in a deliberate effort by drug traffickers to drive addiction amongst kids and young adults. On October 6th, a group of U.S. Senate Republicans released a pre-Hollywood PSA using the issue to score cheap political points. But of course, um, in Marsha Blackburn in one of the clips said, the powerful drug cartels are coming after your kids, your neighbors, your students, your family members, and your friends. Um, Rainbow fentanyl warning parents about the dangers of a new form of drug for Halloween was uh, headlined uh, in a local TV in Indiana. In the piece, the Indiana State Police uh, and Indiana State Police Sergeant Matt Ames said that even though they had received no reports of rainbow fentanyl, parents should still be afraid. Quote, make sure that you're going to houses that you know, make sure that the lights are on and make sure that after you've done the trick-or-treating that the parents actually go through the candy with the child, he said. And uh, a TV station in West Palm Beach, Florida, encouraged concerned parents to only let their children trick-or-treat directly at police stations. Sounds mm. like fun. If you still have concerns, a number of community organizations and law enforcement agencies hold trunk-or-treat events on site 
Station said before noting that the Martin County Sheriff's Office in South Florida was hosting such an event. Um, he uh, writes that uh, the panic kicked into overdrive on October 19th when uh, an LA County Sheriff's Department announced that authorities had intercepted someone trying to smuggle teal colored fentanyl pills and candy boxes at Los Angeles International Airport. The LASD's press release then warned that the drugs could wind up in children's bags at the end of the month. Quote, if you find anything in candy boxes that you believe might be narcotics, do not touch it and immediately notify your local law enforcement agency. Department warned. That uh, is also a nod to the crazy idea that touching fentanyl has killed, I think it was police officers they claimed or something. I don't know. But that people were getting fucked up by touching fentanyl, which uh, is a near scientific impossibility. Of course, Fox News picked this up, blamed Biden, and suggested parents should let their kids shouldn't let their kids trick or treat at all. Hmm. Um, oh my god, I I remember that, but like it's also just hitting me now that two years ago, in the midst of COVID, when towns and counties were canceling Halloween and trick or treating, they were flipping the fuck out about it and freaking out at Democrats because we shouldn't be yeah. treating. But now, two years later. Let's forget about that. Everything is just instantly memory hold um, yeah. until the next episode of Tucker Carlson. Um, on the 27th of October, the DEA tried to tamp down on the panic. Uh, quote, so a bag of Skittles that contains fentanyl pills goes into a drug dealer's home, and there happens to be kids in that home. Uh, it's Halloween time, and maybe that child then takes that bag and takes it to school with them and that's where we have the danger of fentanyl in my mind. That was someone from the DEA. So that's the danger that uh, a child in the, uh, the house of a drug dealer accidentally uh, brings them to school. Yeah, I'm sure that, that's, that's, that's a legitimate widespread possibility. Um, so yeah, utter, utter ridiculousness, fear-mongering, hypocrisy, that is... Uh, that's something that we see a lot of, and we're going mean, to continue to see it. Let's just remember that, like, people who sell drugs want to sell drugs, not put it in your kid's Halloween candy. Yeah, they want to throw away money like that just to fuck with the kids. I mean, like, it's because it's in a if it's in a candy box, it's to make it easier to smuggle, not to sell it to children or give it to children. Honestly, I, tr- I trust drug dealers more to keep it out of candy around Halloween than I trust Republicans to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, except maybe try to uh, lower taxes for rich people and corporations. Um, but uh, yeah, so that'll do it. Our last episode before the uh, midterms are over. And uh, I guess we'll... Uh, Jess and I will see everyone in a few weeks and uh, tune in the next couple of weeks for a couple of interviews uh, by Martina. And uh, thanks as always really to everyone for listening to Iridian Falcone for inspiring the podcast and our logo and to my friend, the Grammy award-winning Vinny Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho for the theme song. See you next time. Thank you.